Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you again and to bring you greetings from Transworld Radio. Thank you for your welcome. Uh, I was a bit worried as well when I saw that Tim was on the sound system. And, uh, and I did try to uh, disable the fader before I came up here, but sadly I haven't been able to. So if I suddenly disappear... Anyway, I'm, I'm presuming now that because you haven't read the Bible, I'm supposed to do it. Is that right? Okay then, well would you turn with me please to Isaiah chapter 6. Just before we uh, we look at this uh, passage together, let me say, I'm not going to say masses and masses about Transworld Radio. We, we've done that previously, we've shown you the video, and if you're interested, uh, we've left some of our uh, latest uh, little magazine out there on a table for you to collect on your way out. So do please take one of those with you and find out uh, how we're engaging the world through radio ministry. But let's have a look together at Isaiah chapter 6. This is where, you see, I've, I've printed my notes out in point 14 so that I won't have to wear my glasses. But now you've found me out because I can't read the Bible without putting my glasses on. <laughs> vanity, vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher. Anyway, Isaiah chapter 6, and we're just going to read through the whole passage. It's only 13 verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the fire. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go, And tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. 
Let's pray together. Enable us, our Father, to respond to the grace of your word with humility of heart and in the spirit of love that our lives may be conformed more and more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, I remember back in my uh, student days, coming home from college during one of the, uh, the long vacs, having kind of wasted a bit of time during term and not really done all the work that I was meant to do. So I had piles and piles of work waiting for my attention. And so I decided the only way to tackle this was to really knuckle down and every day work like mad to clear the backlog. So when I got home, day one, I decided I'd nip down, grab some breakfast and then bury myself in my room. And then around tea time, I beetled off to visit my girlfriend for the evening. That turned out to be a a good investment because now she's my wife. But then on day two, I did the same, dashed downstairs, grabbed some breakfast, ran back upstairs, beavered away at my work until tea time, off to the girlfriend's. Day three, it was the same. Day four, it was the same. And then day five, there was a knock on my bedroom door. And it was my dad. And he said, look, you come home, you eat our food. Anybody recognize this kind of thing? You use our house, you borrow our car, and you don't even say good morning. And he left it there for effect and kind of slowly backed out. And it was one of those little uncomfortable moments in life when you see another person a little bit more clearly and you realize how they see you. Now, in a very, very tiny way, that's a little bit like the encounter that we're going to look at together this morning for Isaiah, recorded there in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw God and realized how God sees us. And it was, for him, a very uncomfortable experience. But it was also for him. A life-changing experience. So turn to Isaiah 6 if you've got your Bible there or uh, I don't know whether it will come back on the screen. In verse 1 he writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now the year that King Uzziah died was round about 740 years before Jesus. And Uzziah had been king of God's Old Testament people for about 52 years. And things were going good. And if you'd asked them, they would have said, well, number one, it's the economy. Stupid. They were well off. And number two, it's the biannual survey. Temple attendance was strong. They were rich. And they were religious. They could almost have lived in Cheshire. And so for both reasons, they thought God must be pleased with us. 
until God showed one of them, Isaiah the prophet, what he, the Lord, is really like and how he really saw his people. So as we follow through Isaiah's encounter with God, first, realize God's holiness. Realize God's holiness in verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And what Isaiah is telling us is something like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, God showed him in a kind of a vision who is really king and what really matters. And it's not how well off you are and it's not how often you go to church, the sorts of things that we can put into a a, a graph or a table. It's whether or not, I recognize God to be king of kings and treat him as I should. And these seraphs, angels of some kind, are object lessons of how God should be treated. Verse 2, above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. They were serving God humbly and self-effacingly. And with two they were flying, they were serving him willingly. They were hovering around waiting for the Lord to tell them what it was that he wanted next from them. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now Isaiah spoke Hebrew, so I guess for his sake the angels did as well. And in Hebrew there's no word for really. So if you want to say really holy, you say holy, holy. And if you want to say really, really Holy, you say holy, holy, holy. And that word holy basically means separated, distinct, set apart. And so what the seraphs are saying is that God is absolutely distinct from us. Because he is morally perfect. But you and me. And Isaiah are just moral compromisers. Just take one example, the area of speech. We've all told lies. We've all exaggerated stories. We've all been economical with the truth or broken our promises or been hypocrites saying one thing but doing another. Whereas God cannot do any of those things. Because that would be for him to go against his very nature. 
He is morally perfect. He's holy. God is light, wrote the Apostle John in his first epistle, chapter 1. And in him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. Whereas we are gray at the best of times. And so verse 3 again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in some sense he's present everywhere and all of the time. So everything that we've ever done, everything that we've ever said, everything that we've ever thought has been done or said or thought in his presence. Imagine that like in that film, if you can remember it, the Truman Show, your life had been filmed from birth. Video and soundtrack. But also a thought track. And even a motives track. And a feelings track. And imagine that we could slot that into the data projector and stick it up here on the wall. Imagine what we'd see. Now that's the knowledge God has of every single one of us. Which brings us to secondly, realize your sinfulness. Verse 5. It's Isaiah's response to realizing just how distinct, set apart, holy, holy, holy God actually is. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. I am ruined. It's the kind of thing you say if you go bankrupt. It means, of course, I've had it. It's the end for me. For I am a man of unclean lips, Isaiah says, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. The Lord is morally absolutely clean and will not tolerate anything unclean. And Isaiah, just like me and you, is morally unclean. So surely we've had it as well. Let's just take one example, that area of speech again. I'm a man of unclean lips, says Isaiah. I've lied. I've exaggerated stories. I've been economical with the truth. I've broken promises. I've been a hypocrite. And God can't just turn to him and say, well, let's pretend that that never happened. Or he can't say to him, well, let's say that doesn't matter. Because otherwise, someone could say to God, but don't you care about truth? Aren't you going to uphold truth in your universe? And the answer to those questions, of course, is yes. Because God is just to the core. And he won't tolerate any wrong. So surely I've had it, says Isaiah to himself. Because surely nothing unclean can come into God's 
theater. I'm bound to be judged. I'm bound to get thrown out. And realizing, realizing our sinfulness is the first step back into a relationship with God. And it comes from realizing God's holiness. So when we stop measuring ourselves by our own standards, when we stop measuring ourselves by society's standards, and we stand absolutely alone before God and allow him in all his perfection to measure us. And if you struggle to accept this negative side of the Christian message, if you don't see yourself as Isaiah saw himself, can I challenge you to come and hear more of the Bible and to read more of the Bible for yourself? Because that's the only way to see God as he really is. And therefore, to see yourself as you really are. But to those of us who are believers, who've come to realize our sinfulness, can I say that that's an experience you never grow out of? In fact, the better people know the Lord, the more they realize their sinfulness. So that sometimes people who've quite recently come to faith get the feeling that they've actually got worse. I remember years ago, back in my 20s, oh, 10 years ago. (laughs) No, okay, never mind. Uh, I had to have a tooth out. The problem was that a wisdom tooth was kind of growing into another tooth and causing that tooth to kind of go sideways. So the dentist said, sorry, we're going to have to pull it out. And they did it under general uh, anesthetic. They pulled and they tugged and they stitched it and all the rest of it. And then off I went. And uh, at first I felt fine. Until the anaesthetic started to wear off. And I felt progressively more dreadful. Not because I was getting worse. I was actually getting better. But because I was becoming aware of just how much damage there was in the first place. And it's a bit like that with our sinfulness. We undergo a kind of spiritual operation in coming to faith in Jesus. But then the anesthetic starts to wear off of our consciences. And we become sensitive to God's holiness and therefore to our sinfulness. In a way perhaps that we never had been before even as we came to faith in Christ. And we often, therefore, feel worse. Now, because we're not because we're getting worse, but because God is gradually making us aware of how much damage there was in the first place. Forgiving and changing. And sometimes the Lord uses one particular sin or an ongoing, ongoing struggle with sin to show us what he showed Isaiah in verse 5 there of chapter 6. For Isaiah, it was the area of speech. And if you're a believer, 
you'll know the particular area of your life that the Lord has used to bring, uh, to show you your sinfulness. And he only shows us our sin so that he can deal with it and deal with it deeply. Which brings us thirdly in verses 6 and 7 to trust God's forgiveness. Trust God's forgiveness. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And the temple building was a kind of gigantic visual aid. There was a place at the front called the Most Holy Place. And it represented to the people of God the presence of God. And it was shut off by a massive curtain, which was a kind of a a visual aid, which basically said to everybody, no entry, no entry. You can't come through here if you are a morally unclean person. And the temple curtain said, don't come in here because sinful people cannot survive in the presence of the holiness of God. They're bound to be judged. But if Isaiah looked the other way and into the temple courtyard, he would have seen an altar with a fire on it. And the fire, too, was a visual aid of God's holiness. And just like paper and fire cannot coexist because one consumes the other, so God and sinful human beings cannot coexist because one judges the other. But on that altar, the priests would place sacrifices. They'd take, for example, a sheep. They'd lay hands on it and confess over it the sins of the people and then they'd kill it and put it onto the altar to burn. And it was a visual aid of the fact that God could provide a substitute to face your judgment in your place. And from that altar, verse 6, one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And the seraph said in effect, God has done something so that the judgment that you fear, so the judgment that you deserve has been taken away. And end of verse 7, atoned for, basically means paid for. Now all that back in Old Testament times was just a visual aid to show in principle how sinful people could come back into a relationship with a perfect God. But ultimately, a sheep cannot pay for human sin. Only a human being can substitute for a human being. And it would need to be a sinless human being who had no sin of their own 
to pay for. It would need to be a human being who morally was infinitely in credit with God and who was willing to pay off our moral debts. It would need to be Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who lived the perfect life that we cannot live. And then died in our place on the cross under the judgment we deserve. Jesus, the sacrifice to which the Old Testament visual aid was pointing forward. But back then Isaiah had a seraph come to him with a live coal from the place of sacrifice saying, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. But today, we have the gospel message coming to us from the place of sacrifice, of Jesus dying on the cross, saying, see, his death has touched your entire life. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And God calls on us to trust that. So if realizing our sinfulness is the first step back into a relationship with him, the second is to trust his forgiveness. To trust that what Jesus did on the cross paid for our sins, past and future. And that is also an experience which we never grow out of, an experience of which we never tire. The better we know the Lord, the more we realize our sinfulness, the more we know our ongoing need to trust his forgiveness. I don't know whether you've ever been to a car auction. Anybody ever been to a car auction? No, you buy them brand new from the Mercedes garage, don't you? Right, well, I've been to a car auction many years ago when I was in pastoral ministry. We were privileged to see a, a car dealer come to Christ. And as often happens when people come to Christ, they kind of want the vicar or the minister. I've just given the game away. I was a vicar. Sorry about that. Uh, to, to see what their world's like. And so he decided that he'd take me along to this car auction. Well, it's, it was quite an interesting experience. When you get there, if you've got a car to sell, you've got to fill in this sheet of questions and then stick it on the windshield of the car. And there's a box on the uh, on the form which basically says all known faults. And you're expected to be honest and come clean and write out everything that you know that is wrong with that vehicle. Well, while we were there, an old uh, Morris Minor came up for auction. And there were so many things wrong with it that it actually had two of these sheets attached to its windshield. And then when it came up uh, for auction, you probably know, very, very popular, so there was quite a lot of activity and interest, where there was a little man stood just near where we were standing who was very, very enthusiastic. He was desperately keen to get this Morris Minor. And he did, in the end, actually win the bid. And he kind of walked away with a big smile on his face, muttering, oh, I love these cars. I've got five of them already. And it dawned on me that not 
only did he understand from the notes on the windshield exactly what was wrong with that car, how much all those known faults its past would cost him to put right, but he could also anticipate anything that might go wrong in the future. The clutch in six months' time, the head gasket in nine months, and so on. And he anticipated the whole cost and was quite happy to pay it. And so it is when the perfect God brings sinful people like you and me back into relationship with himself. God can fill in that box all known faults for each and every one of us for the whole entirety of our past much, much better than even we could do it ourselves. And he can anticipate every way in which we'll fail him in the future between coming to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and meeting him in heaven. And he paid for the lot. On the cross. So that in his great love. He can have us back. Into a relationship. In which we do not need to fear. That he would ever. Give up on us. So we can live as the woefully imperfect people that we are. In a relationship with the most perfect of perfectionists. But forgiven. And loved. And secure. And that is life-changing. So trust his forgiveness. It may be that some of us here need to do that for the first time today. It may be that some of us are stuck at the verse 5 point, realizing our sinfulness, crying out, woe is me. But if the truth be known, quietly despairing about whether God can forgive us. Well, the answer comes loud and clear from Jesus' death on the cross for us. Yes, whatever is on your conscience, it can be forgiven. And for those who've heard that message from the cross and trusted it, the thing to do is to go on trusting it. Trust in his forgiveness again and again and again. Because as well as being holy, 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 he is forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. And thank the Lord that he is both. And then lastly, and just very briefly, fourthly, obey God's call on your life. Verses 8 through 13. Obey God's call on your life. Isaiah was both typical, he's a sinner just like me and you, and of course, unique. He was a prophet. And verse 8 onwards is first and foremost about that unique part of Isaiah. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people. So he gets this direct verbal call to be a prophet. And he receives words from the Lord to pass on to the people. That's unique. But what we can apply to ourselves is this. Once 
you have realized God's holiness and realized your sinfulness and trusted in God's forgiveness, you have a gospel to share. And part of God's call on our lives is that we do indeed share that gospel. And we need to say to ourselves, as, as doubtless Isaiah said to himself, what God has done for me, he can do for all of the people around me. Remember verse 5, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Conclusion, God, who is perfect, can forgive me. He can forgive any of them. Because I was and am basically no different from them. But sadly, that doesn't mean they'll listen. Verse 9, he said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Which is a kind of a poetic way of saying, as you preach, they will harden their hearts against what I have given you to say. Isaiah's preaching will in some sense harden them. Although people, of course, remain responsible for the fact that they have hardened their own hearts against what they hear. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged. Until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stubs when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And when people hear about our perfect God, they respond in one of two ways. Either the way that Isaiah did, realizing God's holiness, realizing his own sinfulness, trusting in God's forgiveness. Or they deny that there is such a God. Or that there is such a problem as sin. Or such a need as forgiveness. And they harden their hearts and they end up under God's judgment and ultimately, verse 12, sent far away. And after Isaiah, that's exactly what did happen to the people of his generation. God judged them and he sent them into exile. But there were a few, look at the last line of verse 13, a stump left after the nation had been cut down. And from which one day would grow a shoot. And we know that the name of that shoot is Jesus. And he would die on a cross. And he would rise from the dead. So that sinful people like Isaiah, like me, like you, could come back into a relationship with a perfect God. Amen.